I don't know if you've ever had to go to an emergency department in the hospital. I wouldn't wish it on you. Um, or maybe you've seen those ads on TV that encourage us not to go to the emergency department. Uh, that is if you've got a sprained ankle or a bit of a runny nose. Um, if you have been, you know how important um, triage is. That assessment of working out, OK, where will you fit in priorities? How urgent is your need compared to this person? Uh, yes, if you've had a heart attack or a stroke or something serious, you call triple zero, you get off to an ambulance, you go to emergency and you get seen to as quick as possible. But if you've got a runny nose or a sprained ankle, probably the physio or the GP or the pharmacy will do, won't it? And they encourage us to do that so that we don't have ambulances ramping and all of those things. I wonder, as you heard the passage from Matthew 5 this morning, how would you assess that passage? How, how would you triage it in relation to other passages of Scripture? We had it read for us, and Geraldine at the end of the reading said, this is the word of God, to which we all said, thanks be to God. But did we really hear what was read? And if we did, did it give us any sense of urgency? Was there anything critical about this passage? Did it ring any alarm bells for you? Or was it low on the priority list? Oh yeah, Sermon on the Mount, we've heard this, we'll move on. Is this emergency lights blaring, ring triple zero sort of stuff, or is it, oh, this is just a trip to the GP or go get some uh, paracetamol from the pharmacy? I want to suggest to us this morning that this is critical. I don't want to compare it to other passages because I think all of God's word is, is pretty important, isn't it? But this is life or death material like eternal life or death material. This is not a sprained ankle or a sore throat. This is like on the floor, no pulse, no breathing, call trip is zero, get the defib out and call out clear and kaboom, try to bring someone back to life. Maybe the church back to life. If we get this wrong, if we ignore this passage, we do so at our peril. Our eternal destiny is at stake here. Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. At a bare minimum, it should have got us sitting on the edge of our seats saying, what's this about? What's Jesus mean? Can you see what I mean about it being quite critical to our eternal destiny? If your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I've got a guess here that most of us here want to know that we'll enter the kingdom of heaven. And so this is pretty important, isn't it? If we take these words lightly, these words of Jesus, if we say, oh yeah, we'll get to that, but there's more important stuff, take, take a seat, sit down, we'll get to you uh, when we can like they do if you rock up to ED with a sprained ankle, then we do that at our peril. And we need maybe we don't have a pulse already. And we need nothing but the grace of God to jolt us back into life. Because nothing else will. We're making our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And last week, Nat encouraged us with that transformation that's taken place. In all who are in Christ, we who are once living in darkness without any hope, without God in this world, Jesus now calls us the salt of the earth and the light of the world. 
illuminating the darkness of this world and influencing it with a flavour and a foretaste, really, of the kingdom of God. And as God's kingdom children, we are simply to let our light shine before others. Did you notice in the reading last week, at the end of that, there's a purpose. Let your light shine before others. There's a goal for letting our light shine so that others may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If we hide our light, if we lose our saltiness, our flavour, that difference that we're hearing about in the Sermon on the Mount that God's kingdom children have, then we miss out on enjoying the rich blessings of God as his kingdom children here on earth. The world misses out on seeing the light and the goodness of God in his children and tasting something of that goodness. And ultimately, God misses out on receiving the glory that is due to him. And I think it could be argued that the Sermon on the Mount, the goal of the entire Sermon on the Mount, is that we would give glory to God the Father. It's what the Westminster Catechism says, isn't it? The chief end of man is to enjoy God and glorify him forever. Which is so different to the way the scribes and the Pharisees were living and teaching. And it's so different to the goal and the glory that is sought by so many in the world today. And it's also so different, if we're honest, with the ways of our own sinful flesh. Because if we're perfectly honest, our sinful flesh doesn't want to give glory to God. We want the glory. One of the reasons we struggle with what Jesus teaches here in the Sermon on the Mount regarding righteousness, and in the coming weeks we're going to see what this righteousness looks like in regards to anger and lust and marriage and divorce and faithfulness and justice. We struggle with it because it is so different. It's politically incorrect in our world today. It can be personally inconvenient and at times pastorally difficult. But none of those things should stop us hearing Jesus' words and obeying them, actually doing what he says. Because this way of life is not solely or primarily even for us, for our comfort, for our health, for our enjoyment. It is all of those things, but it's actually ultimately for the glory of God our Father. Our life is not about us, dare I say it? Young people, your life is not all about you. It's about God. It's about giving glory to God, your Father, who is in heaven. Even as we read this morning of the need to have a righteousness which exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the goal is not to reach some great height, it's to give glory to God the Father. And we're going to see today and in the coming weeks that this life in the kingdom of heaven lived here on earth is all about knowing the Father, not just giving glory to him but knowing him. If you do a little word count or a word search just in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6 and 7, uh, take my word for it, you can go home and do it. The word heaven is the most popular word. It's the word that occurs the most. 
More often than not, that word heaven actually qualifies kingdom of heaven or your father who is in heaven. It's the father who occurs the most next to heaven in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a message about God our Father, about giving glory to him, about asking of the Father what we need, about receiving from the Father that which he knows we need, that which he sees in secret, our daily needs, his mercy, his forgiveness. It's about doing the will of our Father. So how is it we come to know the Father? That we might give glory to him, that we might ask of him, and receive from him. We come to know the Father the same way we enter into the kingdom of heaven, by having a righteousness which exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, you probably weren't expecting that answer, were you? You probably weren't expecting me to say that was the way to knowing the Father. You've heard me preach too often. But Jesus says, verse 20, if you haven't got it open, open up to Matthew 5, verse 20. I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus teaches elsewhere, doesn't he, when speaking to Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, unless you're born again, you cannot see, let alone enter the kingdom. Entry into the kingdom of heaven, God the Father's kingdom, And knowing God as Father, it requires a righteousness and a renewal in us, a regeneration, a new birth, that actually seems impossible for anyone to attain. Nicodemus himself said, how can this be? Surely a man can't enter his mother's womb again and be born again. And we could ask the same thing here of Jesus. How can anyone attain a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? How can it be? But Jesus also says elsewhere, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know the Father? Know me. Bob's children's talk (laughs) spoke to that, didn't it? God the Father himself said through the prophets, they will all know me, this great promise of the new covenant. They will all know me. Why? How? For I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sins no more. So it's through Jesus that God has made himself known. It's through Jesus that we come to know the Father. It's through the forgiveness of sins that we receive in Christ that we know God. Which means it's through him that we enter the kingdom of heaven. It's through Jesus that we ever, could only ever, attain a righteousness which surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. If we think there is any other way, we don't know the half of our sin. We don't know the half of our sinful nature, such as the deceit of sin. Paul tells us, he's quoting from Psalm 14 in Romans 3, there is no one righteous, not one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. He's a great joy to have at a party, isn't he? That's not all Paul's got to say, is he? Is it? No, we cannot achieve this righteousness ourselves. 
But in Jesus Christ, we have achieved, we've been given, we've been reckoned, counted a righteousness, which is the very righteousness of God. Apart from Jesus, we cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. But in him, all who believe in him, God counts as righteous. We've been justified, haven't we? Most of us here, I think, will know it. We've been justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul tells us, it was going to be a reading I thought about having in 2 Corinthians 5, this great exchange that's taken place on the cross. For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin. Jesus, who knew no sin, he became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God has taken us in our dead, lifeless state dead in our sins and iniquities, flatlining on the stretcher in ED. And he's made us alive. Not just alive to have another go and have another crack at it and see how we go, only to fail again. No, he's made us alive in Christ and he's filled us with all the fullness of God. That's worth singing about, isn't it? It's worth an amen or a hallelujah. Thank you. And truth be told, I think I know I'm preaching to the converted. Most of us here. We've heard this. This is not new. This is something we live in, we breathe. And I hope it is. If this is new for you this morning and it's come to you afresh, then praise the Lord. And I hope it brings you the same joy and blessing that it does to all of us here who have come to know Christ. But this is not theoretical. This is not just theological in the sense that it's good stuff to think about. This affects the way we walk and the way we talk, the way we think, the way we struggle. Is this still life-changing for us? Is this still of a critical nature for us? Is it still as God-smackingly glorious gobsmackingly that was meant to be not God's <laughs> as it was the day you first believed like where do you turn when you receive a dreaded diagnosis from the doctor and you have those little worries in the back of your mind saying is this God really finally getting me back for that sin back then that's a righteousness issue that's a justification issue Where do you turn when the accuser comes, accusing, reminding us of our sin and our shame, all our guilt and our failures? Where do we turn when our children, who we've raised up in the church and in the faith, wander and reject Christ? Start to blame ourselves. Young people, where do you turn? when you feel like no one cares and you feel like your friends have got it all together and you're really struggling and you're not sure about what's going on in your head and who you are and where you belong. That's a righteousness issue. It's a justification issue. Where do we belong? Who has made us right before God? Where do we turn when day after day, week after week, just getting out of bed seems to be a trial? or when we simply know in our own life and conscience, especially as we're going to read the next few weeks, the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, I can't live up to I don't live up to this. 
when we read about how God judges the heart, not just what we do, but what we think. Where are we going to turn? We need a saviour. We need a brother and a friend who is like us in every way, who has gone through everything we go through, tempted and trials and worries and traumatised and threats, has endured all of that and yet has done that without sin. We need someone who can not only empathise with us through those trials and those times of trouble, but one who has promised to take us through them to glory. We need one who's not only died for our sin, we need one who's actually lived a righteous life for us that we can depend on. Is that where your faith takes you in those times? I hope and pray it is. But if you're anything like me, sometimes it takes a little while to get turned around back to Christ. Remember that question at your baptism, if you had it, do you turn to Christ? that's a daily question and a daily response for all of us who walk by faith turning to Christ to our saviour the son of God who's made that great exchange our sin for his righteousness and in that there's a freedom and a joy and a blessing and a life to be lived which won't be easy it will be difficult because it will be different to the way the world lives But it's the best way, it's the way of blessing, it's the way of joy, it's the way of Christ, it's the way of all God's children. In Christ we have become the very righteousness of God, justified, forgiven, sanctified, adopted into his family and promised entry into his kingdom. How do we attain a righteousness like that? Well, did you hear it in our second reading? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned, it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you believe the promises of God when life's hard? Like the psalmists do? To the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that's us, His faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. The only way we could ever claim a righteousness of our own, that which exceeds that of the Pharisees and scribes, the kind of righteousness Jesus requires of us here, is if God forgives our sin, if he doesn't count it against us. And the only way God could ever do that the one who justifies the ungodly and not hold our sin against us, the only way God can do that and still remain God and still be righteous and just is by making sure his law is fulfilled, his holy law, every jot and tittle of it. He can't just sweep it under the rug. He can't just cast a blind eye over it. Every thought, word and deed needs to be judged and accounted for. The ledger needs to be reconciled. And that's what he has done in his son. For you and for me and for all who come to him in faith. That's what Jesus is referring to here. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, verse 17. 
I haven't come to abolish them. I haven't come to say none of that matters. I've come to fulfill them. And fulfill them he has. He hasn't come into this world to reinvent the wheel. What's contained here in the Sermon on the Mount, it's not a replacement of the old law. Throw that one out. This is, what's, this is what matters now. No, this is the fullness. This is the fulfillment of it. He says quite strongly, doesn't he, in verse 18, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it all is accomplished. Not one iota, it's the smallest of Greek letters and it's referring to the smallest of the Hebrew letters in the law and the prophet. And not even a dot, like the dot on top of a letter I or J, little mark in the Hebrew alphabet that distinguishes one letter from another. None of that will be looked over. None of that will pass away until it is all accomplished. Jesus will accomplish and fulfill everything everything required by the law and everything prophetically foretold by the prophets. And for that to happen, Jesus lived the perfect righteous life required by the law. But he also died the death that the law required of every sinner. He had to do that to fulfil the law. And he has done the righteous requirements of the law, every jot and tittle of them, have been fully met in Jesus Christ. And through faith, they've been met in every person who turns to him in faith. Do you believe that? That promise of God? Do you know it? Will you rejoice in that? And will you turn to him daily in that? Because that's how the righteous live, isn't it? By faith in the promises of God and the word of God and the son of God. There is nothing more for us to do. For salvation, for righteousness, to be justified, no sacrifice, no work. Jesus Christ has done it all. He's fulfilled every bit of it. Only believe. And even that's a gift of God. And so in faith we can be sure we will enter the kingdom of God. And so we can put away the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, can't we? Because it doesn't matter anymore. Well, why does Jesus keep on speaking? Still, Jesus says, the law and the prophets, yes, he's fulfilled them all, not come to abolish them, But he actually says they will remain, they will not pass away until heaven and earth pass away. Okay, what now then? How the law functions, how it remains relevant and applicable to us, maybe another whole conversation, another whole sermon. Definitely the ceremonial aspects of the law, they've been superseded, haven't they? We no longer have sacrifices, not even in children's talks. Why? Because that act of sacrifice, those daily annual sacrifices, they're no longer necessary because Christ's sacrifice was perfect and once for all. He's our eternal high priest. And yet Jesus is still saying here, no, the law and the prophets, they still remain until heaven and earth pass away. And he goes on to speak the rest of the Sermon on the Mount too. Why is that? 
Well, this is the way of love. This is the way of life for God's kingdom. This is the way of blessing that the Beatitudes began, the Sermon on the Mount. The grace of God in Jesus doesn't remove the requirements of God's law. It fulfills them. He fulfills them, a gift of his grace. And yet there's still a way of life for us to live, isn't there? And Jesus gives us everything we need to know what that way of life is, to enjoy the blessings of God and the joy of being his children. And by doing that, he doesn't actually relax any aspect of the law either. He actually warns us not to do that. Whoever, verse 19, whoever relaxes even the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, they'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now he's actually saying that because of what he's going to say in the coming weeks. Because the scribes and the Pharisees, they were doing exactly that. They were relaxing some of the commandments of God. They were tightening up on some things and relaxing on others. Jesus comes. He doesn't, he doesn't change God's law. He corrects the interpretation and application of that law in his day. He's just told us he's come on a mission not to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Some say, and I think in the past I've said, well, here in the sermon, Jesus sort of intensifies, he ratchets up the law. He doesn't actually. There's been a relaxation of it and what he does is correct that and bring about the right interpretation and application of it. Let me explain that a little bit because it will help us in the coming weeks and I hope for our own days in living. Remember, this is, what does Paul say in Romans? i get it right because I don't want to get it wrong. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's not the end of the law. He's the end of the law for righteousness. It's not by doing all this stuff that we become righteous and get our ticket into God's, heaven, into God's kingdom. But there's still a way of life for us to live. Not with a hardness, guilt-driven, got to do this, restraint. No, as a freedom to receive the blessing of God and live in the joy of life. And Jesus doesn't want us to miss out on that, which is why he's corrected the Pharisees and scribes here. They were teaching and striving for a righteousness based on external obedience, a very rigid and formal obedience to the law, one which, if it not to God, at least looked like to the, his fellow, their fellow people, a righteousness and a, pi- a pious way of life. And they sought and taught to live like this without much, if any, consideration of the heart and the motive. They were pursuing, Paul tells us later, a a righteousness through the law without faith. Friends, there is no righteousness without faith. There never was. Not in the old covenant, not in the new. Abraham teaches us that. But Jesus teaches us how this righteousness, which exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, is not about our outward behaviour primarily. It's about the matter of the heart. It's a righteousness that comes by faith. The Pharisees should have and could have known that if they knew their Old Testament scriptures and looked at it well. When they realised they couldn't obey the law, it was too heavy a burden for them. Rather than being poor in spirit, back to the Beatitudes, and meek, and thrusting themselves upon the mercy of God, the path of blessing, they chose instead to cheat, sort of, they reinterpreted, they reapplied the law and they relaxed, as I said, some of the aspects of it. For example, it was fine to be angry 
It's fine to look and lust after a woman so long as you didn't commit murder or commit adultery. Everything else is okay. Till that point when you actually committed murder or adultery, then you were culpable, guilty, disobeying the law. That's what the scribes and Pharisees were teaching. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You've got anger in your heart. A lustful thought towards a person. You've broken the law. You've committed murder. You've committed adultery. And you need my grace and forgiveness. You need the mercy of God. And when it comes to the things that God permitted, as we'll get to in a couple of weeks, things like um, Moses allowing the people to have a certificate of divorce or in the matters of retribution, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, scribes and Pharisees, they were allowing for divorce on just about any and every ground. A wife could burn the toast and the husband would say, I don't want you anymore. Literally, that's what they were arguing. Or you could take retribution on any tiny little detail. There's no mercy, there's no... It's just you take revenge yourself. And Jesus counters that, these relaxed permissions, and says, no, 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 it's not like that. It hasn't been like that from the beginning. And we'll see that in more detail in the coming weeks. Pray for us as we preach through that, because some of it will confront us. Jesus makes it clear here, doesn't he? Whoever relaxes even the least of these commandments, whoever suggests, ah, it's not a big deal if you do that, not a big sin, it's not like actual murder, it'll be okay. You think like that, you'll be called the least in the kingdom of God. There's no reward for relaxing God's law. There's only littleness promised in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them, the commands of God, whoever teaches them, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, the grace of God and the gospel doesn't relax God's law at all. Christ said he's come to fulfill them. It would cease to be grace if he relaxed it. Because you know what, ultimately? It would mean in the end, if God relaxed his law, in the end, we, you and I could be condemned on some legal technicality of God's holy law. Now, God's grace confronts, God himself confronts, and addresses every aspect of his own holy law in his Son, head on, in Jesus. No longer passing over sin. The time of his divine forbearance, his long-suffering patience has come to an end as he puts Jesus Christ forward as a propitiation, that atoning sacrifice for us. And in him he has judged every sin, every breach of the law, big and small, every detail. Such that in him the law and the prophets are accomplished, they're fulfilled. Every jot and tittle of them. There in Christ, in the life he lived, the righteous requirements of the law are met. And in Christ, in the death he died, the righteous requirements of the law have been met in his atoning death for us on our behalf. And there in him, God reveals a righteousness, his righteousness, shows himself to be totally just and at the same time justifying sinners like you and me. And there in him, in him alone, in the one who became sin for us, 
we become the righteousness of God with a righteousness that far exceeds any scribe or Pharisee who hasn't turned to Christ. Because some of them did. And with that, with that righteousness, with that gift of God's grace, we are given the Spirit, aren't we? And that promise of the new covenant that we'll have a new heart that actually delights to do God's will. And I know that, and you know that, because we hate it when we don't do it. It goes against the grain, doesn't it? And all of that gives glory to God our Father in heaven. Friends, you've, been, you've become the righteousness of God. And so his law is not a heavy thing. It's not a thing that condemns. It's not a thing that restrains. It actually frees us. It gives us joy. It gives us the best way to live in his kingdom here on earth as his children. How could we ever repay God for such a gift as that? His righteousness. What can we ever give to God, the psalmist says, for all his goodness and grace towards us? I'll take the cup of salvation. I'll receive this gift from God. All of it. And I'll call upon, I'll turn to Christ, call upon the name of the Lord. As we're about to sing, we are debtors to mercy, aren't we? Mercy alone. Let's pray. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. Gracious Father, what grace and mercy you've lavished on us that we should be called children of God, righteous and holy children of God, beloved of the Father. Father, words are not enough. Even songs and tears are not enough. But you ask for nothing in return. Only that we receive from you your love and your mercy and your grace by faith. And yet you, Lord and Father, you keep on giving and giving and giving. Your righteousness your steadfast love, your abounding mercy and grace. We remain debtors to mercy alone. And so we do sing, we do speak, we even cry, Father, we believe. And there's times where we need to cry, help us in our unbelief too. That we would receive from you all the fullness that is in Christ, by your Spirit. Father, refresh us in these glorious truths that we are your covenant beloved children, that in him we have become the very righteousness of God, and so in that to live to the fullness of the life you've given us to live, by faith, 
as we follow your way and your will in obedience, the obedience of faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.